Nice to be back in, uh, in the facility. You say the church, but we're the church. So it's probably best suited to say this is just the building. Because we met last week and we weren't in a building. Well, some of us were in portable buildings. Some of us were in permanent structures. Uh, some of you, some of us, I say collectively, because it's probably even some of the kids that aren't here. Some of the kids were in no building, yet we still had church, because we are the church. So it's great to be back. It's great to be back in the building and uh, the church house. Um, Next week, uh, we'll have Blake and Sammy Donnelly will be here um, sharing their missionary uh, uh, endeavor. They've saddled up with Free Burma Rangers. If you don't know anything about Free Burma Rangers, and uh, all the guys' ears are really perked up because it says, ooh. Anything that says the word ranger, like, has got a guy's attention. Like, all Ford had to do is to name one of their pickup a ranger, and they went off the charts in sales. So it's really a thing that keys up with guys. It's not just for guys. Sammy will be here as well, and actually the whole family will be here. But uh, they have uh, joined the, uh, the infamous missions organization, Free Burma Rangers, and uh, they'll be here sharing this next week. And so we're going to sneak in the first part of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians this week. And then next week, Blake and Sammy, and then the following week, we'll continue in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, and then on, on through from there. There's an old story about uh, this uh, monastery uh, way up in the, in the mountains. If you know anything about monasteries, the, the monks there are, have, a, have taken a vow of silence. This particular monastery, they allowed one monk, monk to speak one sentence once a year. So one monk could say out loud, he could share one sentence one time a year. And then they had this rotation system. So this one particular occasion, this uh, monk, we're going to give him the name Tom. I don't know why. It was the first name that came to my mind. But old Tom says it was his time to speak. and So he stood up and he opened his mouth and he says, I like how the mashed potatoes are prepared. They're nice and, and tasty. They're moist. They're my favorite. Another year goes by, complete silence, until it was time for the second monk. We'll call him Bill. Not our Bill. By the way, I'll insert inside of the joke that it's great to have Bill Shook back with us and uh, in recovery mode. But the second monk, Bill, he stands up at the table and he says, uh, I think potatoes, the mashed potatoes are too dry. And he sits back down at the table. And a whole year goes by. Not a word spoke. So after that time period, come time for the next monk to share his sentence, it was the head monk, we'll call him Jim. Jim stands up and he says, I'm really tired of all this bickering. <laughs> and he sat down at the table and that was that. We're talking about conflict today. That's a funny story about this stretched out, uh, you know, occasion, of course it's all fictional, but... Uh, you think about it in the context of, of uh, communication, 
three sentences, two sentences of conflict, one of displeasure. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and we've come to chapter 6, where Paul brings some correction about how Christians interact and deal with one another in conflict. Now, the Holy Spirit has inspired the Apostle Paul to address these issues in the church in Corinth. This was one of those issues that was reported back from him, it says in the first chapter, from the Chloe's household. So Paul had gotten this report back, and if you remember quite a few weeks ago, I'd shared this slide about how there's actually four letters written to, first Corinth, the, to the church in Corinth, and the first letter that we're in now is actually the second letter. Second Corinthians is actually the fourth letter. Don't let any of that confuse you. The bottom line was is that he had feedback that things were going sideways in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul both deals with what's reported back to him, but he also deals with, and he kind of weaves these issues together, especially through chapters 5, 6, and 7. He kind of weaves these issues together. He talks about one, then the other. And this issue of conflict was one of those things that was reported back to him. The last time we looked at... Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it was an issue that was reported back to him about sexual immorality. Well, now he, he switches gears here at the beginning of the first half of chapter 6 to talk about conflict. So he's addressing these issues. He's also answering questions that they had. We'll get into that in the latter chapters of the 1 Corinthians. But in, as I mentioned, in the first five chapters of 1 Corinthians... We read where the believers were really acting, and he uses this word, they were acting carnally. They were acting carnally. They were acting worldly, fleshly, in the way that they were carrying on their division over preferred church leadership, their understanding and use of secular wisdom as opposed to spiritual wisdom from God, their apathy towards sexual sin, which was chapter 5. All of these things Paul addresses... Uh, in the carnality of what was coming on there in the town of Corinth in the first century. Now as we come to chapter 6, we're going to see once again how Christ the Corinthians were using these secular means to solve spiritual problems. That's really at the heart of where he's going here. In all of these areas that, that Paul is talking about, starting in chapter 1, clear up to where we are, <clears throat> the real issue at heart was is that the church in Corinth was using secular means to solve spiritual problems. And he says, you can't, you, we can't do that. And I'm here to say, we can't do that. We can't do that. So as we turn to 1 Corinthians, we should ask ourselves, especially in, resolve to, in uh, relationship to addressing conflict issues, we can ask ourselves three questions. Do we turn to secular or worldly solutions to solve spiritual problems? I guess I've given you the right answer already. But you need to assess it for yourself, for your own walk, for your own marriage, for your own family, for the relationships around you. Do you turn, do we turn to secular or worldly solutions to solve spiritual problems? The second question would be, <clears throat> who has God provided to help us work through conflict? Do we even believe that that's something that the Bible talks about? Who, is God, who has God provided for you? Because the reality is conflict's going to come, right? Can we all say that's right? Has there anybody never had any conflict in their life? Raise your hand. I want to come and take your pulse. It's, it's not possible. You will have, 
you either already have, currently have, or will have conflict in your life. There will be some issue. There will be something that crops up. It might be minor, it might be major, whatever it is. The second question is, is who has God provided to help us work through conflict? The third question is, is what is God using as a motivator to inspire us in spiritual growth? What is God using as a motivator to inspire us when it comes to our spiritual growth in the midst of conflict? Well, open your Bibles, look up on the screen, grab your smartphones, your tablets, whatever it takes to put the Word of God on your lap or within your sight. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read the passage, then we're going to go back through it and take a look. Follow me here. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1 says this, Dare any of you have any matter against another? Go to the law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more then the things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not, <clears throat> why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, neither th nor thieves, nor covetousness, or covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, the last few messages out of chapter 5 have been pretty heavy. And uh, I, I, I've, as I said before, I make no apology for that. This seems almost as heavy, in a sense, simply from the tone and the inspiration that Paul has from God to deal with these issues. Uh, he's on a roll. It's good to read. I want to insert this right from the get-go. It's good to just read the whole book straight through. Like somebody was just right, just read the whole thing, so you get the overarching context of the whole book. By the time he gets, though, to this chapter 6, I believe the Apostle Paul is really fired up with the pen. And in 11 verses here, we've only read 11 verses of chapter 6, I don't know if you counted them, but there's 10 questions. The Apostle Paul asked 10 questions in 11 verses. I don't know if there's a passage in the Bible that has that type of ratio anywhere, cover to cover, where there's that many questions that are asked uh, using questions to correct the listener. So by asking these questions, the Lord, through Paul, is doing three things. He's rebuking their carnality. He's reminding them of their future. He's reshaping them into the image of Christ. He's rebuking their carnality. 
That comes across as the sarcastic side. Those of you that are like me can really relate to, <laughs> to that piece. Paul's reminding them of their future. He's reminding them of their future. And he's reshaping them into the image of Christ. And there's a clear teaching here embedded in this passage on how the church should function in the midst of conflict. I hope we don't miss that component. There's clearly a, 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 an, an avenue and an understanding all the way through this. Some of it is brought out in the sarcastic part of some of these questions. Some of it's brought out in the kind of the inspiration of, of what's going to happen in the future. But there's a clear teaching here that he brings out. I use the word embedded. Really, it's not really embedded as if it's hard to see. The clear teaching in here on how the church should function in the midst of conflict. Now, before we dive back in and kind of analyze these 11 verses, there's a couple of things here that I think that is good to remember where conflict comes from. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 reminds us that, com that conflict comes from the desires that, that, uh, that war in us, right? You fight, you struggle, he says. These desires for pleasure that war in our members, and he lists off these ones, lust, murder, covet. These things war within our members and cause conflict. Another one that uh, is pretty telling is in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus gives us a description of what things will be like at the end of the age. And verse 12 is really where I want to highlight, but I want to read the whole passage. Where Jesus says this, Take heed that no one deceives you. Verse 5 says, For many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then, there will, <clears throat> then they will deliver you up, to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Not a very pretty picture, Jesus, I admit. Verse 10 says, And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Now we're getting into where conflict comes from. There will be many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And verse 12 of chapter 24 of Matthew says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. That verse 12, and then lawlessness will abound, and it'll look like this. People won't love one another. People won't love one another. And when you have a lack of love, and we're going to get into this in coming components here of the message, when you have a general lack of love, when love grows cold, when love grows cold, conflict thrives. Let me say that again. When love grows cold, conflict thrives. We've been talking a lot about this weather we've had this summer. There's certain weeds, when it's screaming hot, there's certain weeds that do really well in the hot weather. We don't see them so much. Like literally in our yard, first time I've ever seen it since we've lived out here at the farm, we have a knapweed growing in our yard. Never seen it before. Probably do because that part of the yard doesn't get a lot of 
uh, a lot of irrigation. That's probably why it came. But in that same likeness, when our love, when the, generally speaking in our society, when love grows cold, conflict is rampant. And Jesus talks about that. Kingdom will rise against kingdom, nation against nation. Wars, rumors of wars. That's where these conflicts start really ramping up in people's desires. As we go back through these list of ten questions that Paul has in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, let's categorize them. Feel free to write in your Bible if you so choose or on your back of your bulletin. But they're really categorized this way. They're either a single or a combination of rebuking, reminding, and rebuilding so we're looking at conflict. Let's go back to verse 1. Dare any of you have any matter against another? Go before law. <clears throat> go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Rebuking, reminding, or rebuilding. You tell me. Don't be shy. Hey, the more we all participate, the, the easier it is to stay awake. Because it's a little toasty in here, I'll admit. And I have a fan going on up here, but it's not really blowing this way. Rebuking. Reminding, rebuilding, what do you think? Rebuke. Rebuking, absolutely. Actually, I put rebuking and somewhat rebuilding because he kind, of, he kind of starts pointing in a direction. It's always kind of nostalgic to talk about Christianity and getting back to the, the you know, early days. We've, we've all heard or experienced that someday. People talk about it. Well, if we can just get back to those early chapters of Acts, if we can get back to the, that first century Christianity where they really had things going on, this is what was going on, <laughs> right? We want to get back to... We've never left. Let's just put it that way. In a lot of ways, we've never left what's going on, especially when regard to conflict. We've never left. There's a presumption that comes <clears throat> out here in this first question. That presumption is that the part of, uh, there's a part of the responsibility and the duty of the church to help people resolve conflict. Paul says it straightforwardly. Straightforwardly. Are you going to the courthouse? We would use that term. Are we going to go up and sit before the judge with the black robe in resolving conflict? Or are we going to bring it before one another? The church has a responsibility, I would rather say a duty, it's actually both are true, to help people resolve conflict. Do we operate that way? Is that what's on your mind? Let's look at the second question. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Rebuking, reminding, or rebuilding? It's a reminder. That's right. That's a reminder. Christians should be fully able to judge their own matters because of this, because of their future destiny. He's saying, what you're going to do in the future, the jobs that I have for you, says the Lord, in the future, should have impact what you're doing today. You guys get that? So this is a dry run when it comes to resolving conflict. This is a dry run for what God has us, for us to do some point in the future. So Christians should be able to fully judge their own matters because of their future destiny. 
As we reign with Jesus Christ, we will, in some sense or another, judge the world and even judge angels. We'll get to that. That's question number four. Question number three, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Rebuking, rebuilding, I put both of them. What made them unworthy is the question that I have. Why does Paul come down so hard that they are unworthy to use that word, that you are unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So what made them unworthy? They're carnal. They're acting out of their carnality. That's exactly right. What made them unworthy is a lack of training and growing and spiritual maturity. So what's the solution? Solid spiritual food and spiritual exercise. So I get that from Hebrews chapter 5, 12 through 14, where the writer of Hebrews says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. And highlight verse 14 says, But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, spiritually mature, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's the picture we have of spiritual maturity that then puts us into the spot, then gives us the discernment to walk through difficult times, either in our own lives or coming alongside of other people, that we're all called. It's not just me. It's not just the elders or the deacons. We're all called across the board as Christ followers to mature in our faith, not to just hang out for 20 or 30 years thinking that coming to church is just the solution to all your problems. Not that it's a bad thing. It's a good thing. But just showing up here for a couple hours once a week, you wouldn't eat that way, would you? Does anybody eat one meal in seven days? I'm not talking about fasting. I'm getting a, I'm getting a side look like, uh, yeah, I've done that. I'm not talking about fasting. It has a very specific purpose. But in your normal routine of taking in calories, do you, anybody ever just like normally eat one meal a week? No, no. We think that that's crazy. If that's our pattern spiritually for spiritual intake, we'll never get to the spot that the writer of Hebrews is saying we need to get to. Solid food belongs to those who are full age, those who by reason of use, reason of use, that should be highlighted in your Bible, those by reason of use have their senses exercised. Our spiritual senses have to be exercised, just like, just like our bodies, right? You want to be able to run a 5K? If I want to run a 5K, I'm not going to go put on a pair of running shoes and shorts right this second and go do it. Somebody will be calling an ambulance, and there will be people out there, <laughs> clear, kink, right? No, I would, need to, I would need to train. And if you look at me, I would need to train. I'll say that's true about me. I would need to exercise. Exercise involves uh, pain. It means that, 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 that we're being stretched, that you're pushing your body to the limit and a little bit past 
Then you're going to be sore. Then you're going to come back and do it again. And the next time you're going to go either, if you're running, you're going to either go a little further. If you're lifting weights, you're going to lift a little more. You're not going to just do the same things every single day. You guys do the same things every single day? No, you have upper body days. You have leg days. You have days that if you're real savvy and you want to ride around the lake, you know, you get on a bike with Sean and ride around the lake. I don't ride around the lake. But I'm just saying that you do different things. And your, your physical body then gets in shape. Are we looking at our spiritual walk and our spiritual maturity in the same way? Do we realize that, that it takes that type of uh, intense focus to grow spiritually, that our spiritual senses are exercised to discern both good and evil. That's what Paul's driving at here. Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Are you on the small weights? Verse, next question, verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Again, a reminder. And again, Paul reminds all the Christian followers that we have future responsibilities of leadership. And that future destiny that we will experience should be the inspiration for our current preparation. Do we get that? The future destiny that we have that we're going to experience is the inspiration for our current preparation. So do we realize, parents, I'll just pick on parents for a second. Parents, when, you're, when your two kids have a, two of your, or more of them two, have a squabble, and you sit them down, and we're having a family chat, do you realize that you're living out that you're working on in that time of resolving conflict, you're building towards something that's a future reality. That you're going to judge angels. Now, so which angels are we talking about? Was there any judgment to angels that didn't fall? I don't think so. I can't find it in the Bible. But the third of the angels that fell with Lucifer that became demons... They have all of history to be judged for, their activity in that. That's where we're going. That's what he's talking about. But it starts right at smallest levels. It starts right with helping people or, or you being a participant and resolving conflict with somebody that's at odds with you. Do you realize that this is an exercise? This is a rep, if we want to stay on the weightlifting term. This is a rep towards something that's a reality for the future. I don't often think of it that way. This passage has really been stretching and changing my way of thinking. So we're even judging angels. The fallen angels went with Lucifer. And if that's such an important job, <clears throat> if that's such an important job, then Paul asked this question, how much more the things that pertain to this life? How much more of the things that pertain to this life? Kind of this rebuilding idea that he's laying out there. He's saying that's important, but what, what about now? What about now? That's what we're going to do. This is what we should be doing. 
And he's saying, you Corinthians are not doing this. will affect our present growth and responsibilities in the <clears throat> for today. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint these things to the least esteemed by the church to judge? A straight-up rebuke, essentially what he's saying is you're going in carnality with carnal thinking. You're going to those that don't have God's spiritual discernments to resolve an issue between, between two people that have the Holy Spirit residing in them. It just doesn't make any sense. And it shouldn't be going on. The least esteemed, in other words, the non-believer. So one, it'll have an effect on our present growth and responsibility. Two, it'll have an effect on who and how we seek conflict help from. Verse 5 says, and I say this to your shame, it is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. Another rebuke. The assumption is, is that we can have and must be able to resolve conflict. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 gives us a wonderful promise from God where it says, And His divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue. A wonderful promise by God. You, you're not sure how to help people resolve conflict? God says in First Peter, I'm going to infuse you through my divine power to help you accomplish all that you need to accomplish. So it's a lot of matter of like, where are we plugging into? And how we walk in that out. If we have all we need for life and godliness, knowing that conflict is a part of life, then what is the mature biblical approach then? What's the, what's the mature biblical approach? Well, I have two really, a passage and a proverb. We'll start with the passage. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 says this, Let love be with, without hypocrisy, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another, with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Uh, that's a lot of resolving conflict. It's simply coming together and being of the same mind. Do not set your minds on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for, <clears throat> have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Verse 18 is the one that I particularly had highlighted in this sermon. It says, and if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not, give, <clears throat> do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in, <clears throat> in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. We really like to hang out on that phrase. 
Verse 21 says, do not overcome evil. Uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Part of the mature biblical approach is right there in verse 18, but all of those surrounding verses that wrap around verse 18 is really shows uh, what a godly character looks like, what a godly life looks like. And Paul uh, is encouraging the Romans, this is how you should live. This is how you should go about your business. This is how you should do life. This should be your mentality. This should be your walk. And as possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's a step to resolving conflict. Like you should have a burning desire in the midst of conflict to get this thing solved. Uh, we were talking uh, the other night, and <clears throat> no doubt in marriage you're going to have conflict. And uh, my dear wife, sitting in the back row over here, she, she'll go day and night to resolve if there's any sense of conflict amongst us, between us. Uh, yeah, like, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. There's times where we've been in conflict. You know what she'll do that evening? She'll rip all the sheets off the bed and start washing the sheets. And I'm thinking, what? It's, good. it's actually a good game plan to resolve conflict. Because it's hard to go to bed without sheets, right? Not for me. I'll fall asleep in a tractor if I have to. <laughs> but she just has this burning desire. It's one thing I really appreciate. And there's times where I'm resistant. I'll be honest. I'll confess this. I'm resistant. It's like, we can solve this tomorrow. It's not that big a deal. But the reality is, is that her spiritual sensitivity is saying, no, this is a big deal. This needs dealt with. This needs resolved. This needs brought to, to, to some closure. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I borrow this old phrase. <clears throat> when I was a teenager, I worked uh, up at Herm Pines Dairy when we weren't doing our own work. And there was an old guy that, that Herm had hired. His name was Howard Payton. And some of you old-timers know who Howard Payton was. He lived kitty-corner from the post office in Addy, and Howard lived in three centuries. Yeah, he lived to his 101. And he was about this tall. And he's just the neatest old guy. He grew up in a, on a corn farm in Iowa, and they eventually moved out here, and they, they bought a dairy outside of Blue Creek at first. And then when he retired, he bought this house in Addy. But he wanted to keep working, so he would work for, for Herm in the summertime. And uh, he wasn't a coarse guy, but he was one of those old guys that just grew up in that era where, you know, either smoking or chewing was fine. And Howard had dentures, and he would, uh, first thing he'd do is he'd get in a tractor, he'd take his dentures out, put them in his lunchbox, and he'd grab a plug of chewing tobacco and put it in his mouth and start working that, mulling that thing around. And next thing you know, the old juice started to kind of, so he's wiping his mouth all the time. But he was a neat old guy, and... Uh, I, I pulled back into the field to get a wagon of feed from him, uh, and he had just finished chopping a load, and I pulled in with an empty load, and we, we switched him around, and I noticed he shut the tractor off and uh, was walking to his pickup. So I walked over there and said, hey, Howard, are we, it was about you know, 5.30, 6 o'clock, middle of the summer, and I said, hey, Howard, are we done? Yep. He says, if there's not another day, he won't need this feed anyhow. And that was his, <laughs> that was his approach. You know, like he had a starting time and an ending time. So I thought, man, this is awesome. We'll go get this thing unloaded. We'll 
run home, grab her shorts, and head over to the river and go for a swim. It was a hot summer day. And uh, <clears throat> that part didn't happen because as soon as I got it unloaded, Herm showed up and he says, we're going to keep chopping. So, but, but I think about that in regard to conflict. It's like, that's my approach. That, kind of, that is like imprinted on my brain. If there's not another day, like, you know, is it that big a deal? I will tell you, after all of these years, it's a big deal. And it's a bigger deal to some than others. And I'll tell you what, though, uh, I appreciate my wife in this sense because resolving conflict is a huge deal to God. That's why it should be important to me. Not just because it's important to my wife, but resolving conflict should be important to me. It should be important to us because it's important to God. First step to perhaps resolving conflict is to really work hard at living peaceably with all men. The next one, though, real short, I said I had a passage in a proverb. And I've used this proverb in encouraging people that were struggling that, hey, maybe it's just time to, you know, to look past it. Proverbs 19.11 says this, that the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory, <clears throat> and his glory is to overlook a transgression. It's a good thing. I think that that's a mark of maturity. Somebody offends you. Somebody says something that, that, you know, that, that gets under your skin. Like if you have the maturity level, eh, just let it go. Right? I'm not saying that every single thing needs to be let go. If somebody is an obvious sin and, and you know, joking and laughing about it, hey, it's time to probably say something. But these little things, these little fissures, these little barbs, let them go. It's to a man's glory to overlook a transgression or an offense, some versions say. That's a couple of passages in a proverb on dealing with resolving conflict. Romans 12 and Proverbs 19, there are treasure troves really of wisdom and application and living together as Christ followers. As much as some may try, though, we must resist the urge uh, to live the Christian life in a vacuum which is a lot of people's way of dealing with conflict. Like, it's just easier not to have conflict if, if our Christian lives don't interact. If I just do my thing over here in a vacuum, you do your thing over there, this, this worldly mentality that what's good for me is good for... What you do you, I'll do me. That's the mentality. I mean, I'm just going to do my thing over here. It's good for me. It's, it's, it's what I think is right, what I think is true. Whatever you want to do, go for it. That doesn't work in the church. We can't do life in a vacuum as Christ followers. To the extent that our Christian relationships are authentic, growing, transparent, and under the rule of Christ, we'll be equipped to deal with conflict. I'll say that one more time. To the extent that our Christian relationships are authentic, growing, and transparent. And under Christ's authority, under His rule, we'll be equipped to deal then with conflict. So what if conflict is unavoidable? What if conflict is unavoidable? Here in 1 Corinthians 6, you see where it's not only unavoidable, but it's gone off the rails into seeking secular help. So what do we do if it's unavoidable? The clearest pattern of conflict resolution 
are the words of Christ in Matthew 18. Uh, Most of you, if you've been a believer for any length of time, have either referred to or quoted or perhaps even walked out. This is probably the most referred to and the least adhered to passage in the New Testament, in my opinion. Matthew 18 says this, Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Understanding Matthew 18 simply explained, I explain it this way, is that conflict's to be resolved at the lowest common denominator. You have two people in conflict, right? So if, if I'll pick on Robbie because he's fun to pick on. So if Robbie and I are in conflict, right, if, if I've done something to sin against him, then he has a responsibility in Christ to come to me one-on-one and say, Hey, Dad, we've got an issue here. Right? And if I'm hard-headed, and I have been, <laughs> if I'm high on my own opinion, and I have been, and he's not getting through, then Jesus says, hey, Jesus' instructions to Robbie is to grab a couple of guys, one or two, and go have another conversation. Now, if I'm humble, if I'm contrite, if I'm spiritually discerning, then he's, I'm going to hear what he says at a deeper level than just, hey, you've offended me. You've sinned against me. I'm going to hear his heart at a heart level where there's interaction, I believe, between the Holy Spirit living inside of two believers. And in that case, Jesus says, hey, job's done. Lowest common denominator. Just two guys having a conversation. But if I don't spiritually discern what's going on, if I'm not quick to to admit, if I'm unwilling to confess my sins one to another, as the Word says, if I'm hard-hearted in any way, if there's some, you know, uh, some division, some root of bitterness between us, in my heart anyway, then He has an obligation, shall I say a duty in Christ, Heck, I'm just not. I'll back off here. I'm not getting through. I'll bring in a couple more guys. That's his responsibility. That's the walk that he has. Not easy, but the right thing to do. So Robbie grabs a couple of guys. We just live out this passage in Matthew 18. He grabs a couple of guys. The word says that by the mouth are two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Okay, so they make another run at me. I have the same ob- ob- I have the same opportunity in the second run, in phase two. Depending upon where my heart is, is is largely going to be determine the outcome. 
But something has changed. What's changed? What's changed in the story? There's two more guys. So he brought Josh and Dave. He brought Josh and Dave to come and talk to me because they've seen the same sin playing out in my life. They're not just Robbie's buddies to just back up everything he has to say. They have spiritual discernment too. They've seen the same sin. They've seen me get angry multiple times, blow my stack, yell and scream. I can get really loud if you want to get loud. And football season's coming. So I've got to get my voice warmed up, boys. Right? So they've seen me blow my stack in a sinful way. They're not just there to back Robbie up. They're back to, what does the word say that they're there to do? What's the Bible? What does your Bible say? That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. The problem in most conflict resolution is the truth seldom established. You want to help people resolve conflict or you want to resolve conflict in your own life appropriately? There's one key component that Jesus says that has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, it's just me against him. My word against him. Well, I didn't, I, that wasn't towards you and, and, and I wasn't sinning against you. And it's my opinion against his opinion. And that is, goes nowhere. Then our relationship is completely on jacks with the wheels spinning. It's not going anywhere. But two or three witnesses coming forward to deal with a brother that's an heir is a good thing. And the reason why it's a good thing, truth must be established in conflict. Truth has to be established. And the Corinthians church were trying to get that from non-believers. How do you get objective truth, divine truth, from somebody that's not under divine rule. You can't do it. It doesn't happen. You're going to get worldly advice, perhaps. You might even get good moral advice, but are you going to get good spiritual advice? So in verse 17, let's just play the scenario on out. Verse 17 says, and if he refuses to hear them, Tell it to the church. If my heart is so cold, if my head is so hard that I refuse to hear what my brothers have to say when they come to me in love, when they come to, it's really for them, it's a ministry of restoration in a lot of ways because I'm obviously in a spot of, of living in sin. And they're saying, no, 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 this can't continue. This can't continue. So they're coming to, to help uh, me reconcile first with God, really, at this point, uh, while even any spot in the, in the controversy. They're not coming just to be Robbie's mouthpiece. They're coming to help resolve the conflict that I have and the sin that I have. And if that can't be accomplished, then it's time to take it to the next level. Then it's time to share it with the church. Hey, we have a we have a brother that's living in sin. He's unrepentant. We've gone and we've talked to him numerous times. Right? We, we kind of take it as a one, two, three approach. That's not, I, I think that there's room for multiple, you know, take multiple passes at this thing. Whether that's, you know, one-on-one or three-on-one or whatever. But then it's time to take it to the next level. 
and tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear the church, let it be like to you, like a heathen and a tax collector. That's a hard statement. The idea is, is that all conflict should be handled at that lowest denominator. With each step, here's where it gets uh, particularly tricky, I think, in a good way. With each step, the person in the wrong has the opportunity to do what's right and to have <clears throat> or have additional accountability leveraged in. But with each step, the, the, the outcome that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 is less in my hands, right? With each, with each level of this thing, resolving conflict, I have, a, I have an opportunity one-on-one, the response is mine. Well, then more accountability is leveraged in. The result of that, the result of the outcome of that can or can't be in my court. It can be in the sense that if I'm humble and repent before a multitude of brothers or a single brother, then that's my, that's my discernment, my choice, so to speak. It's in my hands. But if I refuse them, then they have an obligation to go to you and if I refuse you, really the ball's all in your court. It's up to what you guys do. That's how Matthew 18 really plays out. Oftentimes, this is the most quoted or referred to passage on revealing con- re- uh, resolving conflict. Not very well walked out in my estimation. It's hard. It's difficult. There's an assumption there. There's an assumption there, and this is where Paul's building to in 1 Corinthians 6. There's the assumption that there's an accountability. That there's an accountability. And then there's an accountability. Do we live our Christian walk that way as a church? We have to ask ourselves these questions. You have to ask yourself this question. Do I live under the biblical assumption that I'm accountable to my brothers, that I don't do my Christian walk in a vacuum, unaccountable to anybody else? I've seen this passage used as a hammer. Oftentimes why it's unsuccessful. Because it's used more as parliamentary procedure than really digging to the heart of the matter of a brother or sister that's in sin. So they use it as a hammer. They use it as a sledgehammer. There's been many people, and maybe some of us in this room, have sat under some sort of church discipline that was pretty extreme, that was used not lovingly, not caringly, but just used as this cold-hearted, well, this is our church policy, you know, like it or leave it. That's not Christ-like at all. So we have to understand these passages. We have to understand 1 Corinthians 6. We have to understand Matthew 18 as well. Really the key to success and all these things and what he's driving to even in 1 Corinthians 6 is that phrase, by the word or two or three witnesses that every word may be established. Truth has to be, objective truth must be, I have it unlined, highlighted, italicized in my notes, Objective truth that we're all subject to must be, that we're all under, I should say, biblical truth, must be established, proclaimed, and submitted to. If not, one or the other, both parties just cling to their own subjective truth. And that's where conflict resolution falls off the 
falls off the table. It's not going to happen. People just hang on to, this is my view, this is how I see it, this is, this is, this is my truth, and they're so guarded and so fearful, and the whole thing just comes unraveled because they're holding on to their own subjective truth rather than coming underneath God's objective truth. Objective truth must be established. All right, we've beat that thing to death. I got to hustle. All right, let's move quick. The problem is, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6, is, is that as much as we don't want it to be, this is all on public display. Uh, your conflict resolution, as much as you want to handle it behind closed doors, um, that's not the reality of 1 Corinthians 6. Paul says it right there. He says this. He doesn't make a question. It's not a question. There's, only, there's two statements in this whole passage so far. He says, but brother goes to brother. You know, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. That's a statement. He's saying your conflict is being lived out in the marketplace. Now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not, why do you not rather accept wrong? Why, why wouldn't you, rather than going to court, settling your dispute, why wouldn't you rather just accept wrong? He's trying to reshape their thinking. Why do you rather not let yourselves be cheated? Again, a statement of reshaping their thinking. In light of how conflict looks to outsiders, wouldn't it be better to just accept being wronged? I've had a few situations like that where uh, I, play, I paid some very ex- expensive vet bills early on in life um, that I wasn't fully convinced that were mine to pay, but I knew I couldn't, I knew I couldn't really probably prove it out. You know, and for a 19, 20-year-old kid to pay 1500 2000 in vet bills, that was a pretty good hit. I was willing to bet on what God would do with these verses in the lives of the unbelievers on the other side of that thing. And so I went ahead and paid it. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brother. Another statement that he has in verse 8. In other words, the lack of maturity puts us in both camps, really. We've been wronged and we do wrong to other believers. And for that, Paul warns them that they're in really, really dangerous territory. Where he says in verse 9, Do you not know, and the last question really that he has, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I really put that in all three camps. There's a rebuke, there's a reminder, and really there's a rebuilding built into that because of its warning nature. Paul gives them this warning. Anyone whose life is characterized by this type of sinful living goes on to say, do not be deceived, neither fornicators or adulterers, idolaters or adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites. Another word there is effeminate. Verse 10, nor thieves or covetous 
nor drunkards, nor revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The, one of the best phrases in the whole book of 1 Corinthians is the first few words in verse 11. And he says, and such were some of you. Such were. That identifies who you used to be, but it doesn't identify who you are in Christ. So you don't have to keep living that life. You don't have to keep living under one of those types of categories. You don't have to live in that victim mentality of, of being sinned against by people that are in that, those categories. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. One of the greatest reminders in the Bible. We're not who we used to be. We have a new identity based on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus living through us to reach the world with a new way to live. And the greatest thing about it, he gives us a whole new way to think about and how to experience and how to walk out resolving conflict. And it's not carnal. It's biblical. It's not worldly. It's godly. It's the greatest news coming through this passage is that if, if, if you haven't experienced that, and maybe you haven't experienced this part right here. Maybe you aren't washed. Maybe this still identifies some of us. I don't pretend to think that everybody sitting in the sound of my voice is automatically a Christ follower. Let's just be straightforward about that. Maybe you haven't experienced Christ's forgiveness. Maybe you haven't been washed. Maybe you haven't been sanctified, set apart. Maybe you haven't experienced Christ's justification, Him taking your sin, taking it to the cross on your behalf, paying a debt that you couldn't pay. I would really encourage you to consider Christ, to consider His words and His ways. And I don't, would not encourage you to do that just because I think so. I, I challenge people this way. <clears throat> you need to dig into the Bible and see if Jesus is who Jesus says he is. That's the key. That's the key. Worship team, come on up, and then uh, Dave will do communion. Turn our attention to communion.